When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Mike Osborne. On this show, we try to be wary of the doom and gloom that surrounds a lot of environmental issues, because we think there are reasons to be hopeful about our future. At the same time, this is the Anthropocene. The Earth is undergoing a geologic transformation, and there are reasons to be afraid. One of the scariest prospects of all is that we're currently standing at the precipice of a mass extinction. Now, throughout Earth history, species have come into the world, had their time on the planet, and then faded into the rock record. Extinction is a natural process, and most of the time, it's slow and constant. But on a few rare occasions, our planet has experienced catastrophes. These are the five mass extinctions, in which over 60% of all species are wiped out in the geologic blink of an eye. So, how close are we to a sixth mass extinction today? What organisms are most vulnerable? And what are scientists learning about how the current pattern of biodiversity loss may affect humans and society in surprising ways? Miles Traer brings us the story. In the southwest of France, just outside the town of Montignac, there's a small grassy hill in a clearing of trees. As your feet crunch along a sandy path, you'll find a long redstone staircase dug into the hill, and at the bottom, a large black door. When you walk through, you'll be at the entrance of the Lascaux Caves, home to some of humankind's earliest art. Painted onto the cave walls in red, yellow, and black are strange and fantastical creatures. An animal with a head like a deer and gigantic squiggly antlers that look like something out of a Dr. Seuss story. The black outline of something that looks like a rhino covered in shag carpeting. And a herd of stampeding creatures nearly three times the size of the horses painted next to them. The artists once painted these creatures from real life. These are the Megaloceros elk, the woolly rhinoceros, and the aurochs cattle. And these cave walls are the last place we can see them today. All of them are now extinct. 
Our planet is currently on the precipice of a mass extinction. And according to a new study, it's like no extinction event Earth has ever seen before. I expected to see some more correspondence between the ancient events and the modern. This is Stanford paleobiologist John Payne, and he's the lead author of the new study. So much research has focused on finding past events in Earth history that have the same environmental changes that we're experiencing today. So things like climate warming, ocean acidification, loss of oxygen in seawater. But we don't have at a planetary scale, you know, mass extinction that looks exactly like this one. All of Earth's previous mass extinctions were driven by climate change and dangerous changes in ocean chemistry. But today, the threat actually comes from us, from our fishing and hunting, the same practices captured by our ancestors in those cave paintings in Lascaux. Now, climate change and ocean acidification may eventually play a major role in the impending mass extinction. But as of right now, in 2016, they are not the primary drivers. The good news, such as it is, is that we're not in a mass extinction just yet. If all diversity loss stopped today and we were somehow able to save every endangered species on the planet, then this would not rank yet as one of the five largest mass extinctions. That said, on land, we've already changed ecosystems a lot. This is already a, a big biological event, even if no more change happens. But it's not quite as big as the five major mass extinction events yet. We've known for a while that humans are behind the biodiversity crisis we're seeing today. As a species, we're unusually good at hunting and fishing. Instead of using claws and teeth, we've used spears, arrows, nets, and rifles. This makes us unique, not just today, but across 550 million years of evolution. One of the big questions is whether any of the previous mass extinction events are particularly similar to the kind of extinction that might be happening today. In particular, can we look at how ecosystems changed and then recovered after previous mass extinction events and learn useful lessons? So what exactly do we know about Earth's previous five mass extinctions? The first was 450 million years ago, at the end of the Ordovician. Earth's climate rapidly shifted from warm greenhouse conditions to cold icehouse conditions. As temperatures dropped, ice sheets developed. Huge glaciers, twice the size of those in the last ice age, crept way down from the poles. They would have buried modern-day New York under two miles of ice. The next mass extinction was around 375 million years ago, in the late Devonian. Scientists aren't sure exactly what happened, but somehow a lot of oxygen disappeared from the ocean, causing a huge die-off. 250 million years ago was the biggest extinction of them all, the End Permian, sometimes called the Great Dying. A series of massive volcanic eruptions spewed out enough volcanic rock to cover the lower 48 states several hundred meters thick. This triggered a release of gases that warmed the planet and acidified the oceans. 200 million years ago, at the end of the Triassic, more huge volcanic eruptions. And 66 million years ago, at the end of the Cretaceous, 
a meteor famously slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula and killed the dinosaurs. A lot of scientists have looked into these past extinctions and tried to figure out how many species died off. In John's recent study, he and his team tried to do something a little different. They wanted to go further and identify what types of animals went extinct during each of these events. Marine environments are better preserved in the fossil record, so John specifically looked at animals that lived in the ocean. What we focused on instead in this study was to ask how body size and feeding mode, so whether you're a predator or not, um, how those related to extinction threat, as well as um, this was a study of marine animals. So we also looked at whether animals lived on the seafloor or lived up in the water. And we looked at whether in their adult form they move around or not. Were the animals that died big or small? Did they move around or were they anchored to the seafloor? Did they live up in the water column or did they prefer to stay deeper? And were there any trends across these five major events? So for the first five mass extinctions, um, the big commonality was that animals that live in the water column go extinct at higher rates than animals that live on the seafloor. Um, and that seems to be true of all of the major mass extinction events. The one aspect of ecology where we do see selection in these previous mass extinctions is that actually often the smaller animals go extinct preferentially relative to the bigger animals. So regardless of the trigger, whether it was sudden glaciation, changes in ocean chemistry, massive volcanic eruptions, or a meteor impact, small animals living up in the water column were more likely to go extinct. This pattern shows up in the rock record for all five of the previous mass extinctions. But when John and his team looked at the current extinction threat, they saw a very different pattern. The big differences are that in the modern ocean, big animals are much, much more likely to be threatened with extinction than small animals. And the other factors don't seem to matter very much. While we wouldn't necessarily expect today's extinction threat to look like previous events, there's still something unusual about this discovery. Ultimately, the previous mass extinctions were driven by changes in climate and ocean chemistry. Volcanoes spew ash and dust into the atmosphere, blocking energy from the sun. They also release thousands of tons of greenhouse gases. Erupted sulfur and carbon dioxide find their way into the seas and drive ocean acidification. Even during the mysterious event in the late Devonian, we see lower oxygen levels in the ocean, similar to what we see today with dead zones near the mouths of big rivers. So those events environmentally look very similar to what we're experiencing, and they give us a time scale for how long it takes those kinds of environmental changes to dissipate. What makes the modern more complicated is that the biology is going to be quite different because the types of animals that are being removed don't follow the same pattern that we see at the end of the Permian or the end of the Triassic. It's important to know that there are a few caveats to John's study. They only analyzed animals that had fossil counterparts, so basically only things with skeletons. No jellyfish, no octopuses, nothing squishy. And the biggest caveat is that John and his team didn't include corals in their analysis. Corals are home to roughly a quarter of all marine species, and they're currently dying off at alarming rates. 
But even with these caveats, the pattern that John and his team found suggests that the sixth mass extinction might look very different from anything we've ever seen before. Just last year, there was a very interesting paper published in Science where the authors showed that humans are actually very unusual hunters in that they tend to target the largest, healthiest adults of large species. And the thing I think that makes humans so different is that we're able to kill at a distance with traps, with spears, with guns. And so we, um, if we're going to bother killing something, you want the most food you can get. So why not kill the biggest, healthiest adult? And so that has, of course, very different consequences for the population dynamics of our prey and is probably a greater threat to many of those species than if we were to preferentially hunt the weak or the young. When large animals disappear from an ecosystem, they often cause what biologists call trophic cascades. Basically, it sets off a chain of dominoes that falls down through the food web in the environment. For example, remove wolves from Yellowstone, and elk populations rise. The elk eat more plants and overgraze certain areas, which make those areas more prone to invasive species. These trophic cascades are actually really difficult to predict. The web connecting all the various organisms in any given ecosystem is extremely complex. But Stanford biologist Rodolfo Durzo has looked at this problem of ecological cascades for years. His research focuses on large animals, also known as megafauna. He studies the roles megafauna play in ecosystems and what happens when they disappear. In, in, in many cases, the larger animals represent um, a, a healthier environment. Imagine, for example, in a tropical uh, ecosystem, if you still have the jaguars, that means that you will still have the prey, uh, the deer and the peccaries and the and uh, tapers and so on and so forth. If those animals are present, that means that the vegetation that they feed on is also present. So the larger um, uh, bodied animals, the presence of the larger bodied animals is a good indicator of the, of the health of the ecosystem. Durzo has conducted experiments comparing ecosystems with megafauna to those without. In a field study in East Africa, he and his colleagues set up electrified fences to keep megafauna out of designated areas and watched what happened. So we have large areas of about um, three or four football fields which are fenced out with electrified fences and they will simulate that in that area the animals are not present. With that we can compare what happens in those excluded areas versus the adjacent control areas. And we can see what are the ecological consequences of not having the animals is that in the absence of these animals, naturally, obviously, the vegetation will change dramatically. More grasses, more shrubs, and so on. And then if that happens then, and if the elephants and giraffes are not present, soil compaction is not as intense, and then the vegetation changes dramatically. But then another thing comes into play the abundance of the small animals, in this particular case, the small rodents, mice, uh, chipmunks, rats, and so on and so forth. And this rise of rodents, what Durzo calls rodentation, was just the first consequence of removing large animals. The biological cascades continued, all the way to humans. We have discovered by the comparison of the excluded areas versus the control areas that if the big animals are not present, the abundance of rats, rodents, increases by roughly two times. So if those animals increase, then the, the parasite that they carry, fleas and ticks and so on, essentially multiplies itself by two. If those um, 
uh, organisms, fleas and ticks and so on, increase roughly two times, the risk of the diseases that they carry also increases two times. So by removing the large animals from the landscape, we might see an increased risk of human exposure to disease. The cascade from loss of megafauna to increased risks for human health was just one example of the critical and often hidden role these creatures play in our ecosystems. Megafauna can also affect the health of landscapes by changing wildfires. Lose the animals, and the fires can become much more destructive. In a situation where you have a human impact on the, on the wildlife, um, the fire regimes and the fire processes are going to be impacted quite dramatically. Think of a savanna in which you remove all the elephants. Then all of this uh, plant material that, that was there available for animals, for elephants to, to eat, to feed on, is uh, the, the elephants are not present. All of that uh, uh, dry uh, matter, all of that vegetation, when it's the dry season, will accumulate and when fires occur, either naturally or induced by human activities, then you will have accumulated an incredible amount of fuel that will change the fire regime. While disease and fire might be among the most dramatic impacts that megafauna have on our ecosystems, arguably the most critical risk is diversity, specifically genetic diversity. Each species shares a common genetic code, but every individual within that species also has its own unique genetic signature. So fewer organisms means less diversity. This is a problem, because for a species to thrive, it needs genetic diversity to keep its population healthy. This is why people used to make jokes about British royalty. For Durzo, protecting genetic diversity of animals is important not just for individual species, but also for the health of entire ecosystems. If you don't have the big animals, tapirs, peccaries, deer, and even the big birds, many of the plants that, um, that grow in these ecosystems produce fruits which are designed not for humans, but they are designed for animals to feed on those fruits and in so doing, carrying the seeds in the digestive tract and dispersing, sort of um, planting the seeds throughout the ecosystem, a, f a phenomenon that we call seed dispersal. Well, imagine an ecosystem in which you don't have these animals, then all the planting and all of the dispersal of these trees that depend on these animals, that are actually designed for these animals to carry the seeds because of the wonderful fruits that they produce, uh, all of these things are going to be altered in their ecological processes of regeneration of the forest. But the disruption doesn't stop at seed dispersal. For a species to thrive in an environment, it's helpful to have a lot of genetic diversity. That way, if something changes, chances are at least some of your species will survive the change, simply because more diversity basically equals more chances for successful adaptation. When that diversity is lost, who knows what can happen? In the absence of the big animals um, that disperse the seeds, the genetic structure, the genetic diversity of plant populations is likely to be changed quite dramatically. It would be fascinating, actually, to do that kind of study by looking at the genetics of trees in the presence and absence of the animals. My suspicion is that if the animals are not present, many of the dispersal regimes of many plant species, which determine sort of the distribution of different genotypes, the genetic structure of a population, 
variation, the genetic diversity of many plant species is going to be dramatically impacted in the absence of these big animals. And of course, that is critical, as you can imagine, because uh, genetic diversity is essential for um, species to be able to be ready to deal with environmental changes. In these periods of the Anthropocene in which um, uh, uh, environmental changes are so dramatic, we do need quite a lot of genetic diversity for populations to be ready to face these changes that are occurring now. If we don't have the genetic um, uh, diversity and, and plasticity and, and, and capacity to accommodate to these changes, then many species are likely to go extinct, not so much because of the environmental change per se, but because of the changes affecting the animals that determine the genetic diversity and in the absence of those animals. The impending mass extinction looks fundamentally different from any other time in geologic history. Durzo's research sheds light on links between the disappearance of large animals and the spread of disease, the links between megafauna and fire ecology, and the nearly invisible genetic links between plants and animals that help them deal with rapid environmental change. Both Durzo and Payne are clear to say that the dominoes don't stop there. Part of what's at risk is our evolutionary history. Payne wonders how our rapidly changing planet might affect the long-term trajectory of our own species. So if we think about, you know, humans evolved in a world, right, that had animals and plants and, and other organisms fulfilling various functions that helped make the water clean, that helped produce food that lots of different animals could eat, and that provided goods that, that people might want to use and sell to one another. If we drive animals extinct, we will start losing those things. Changing the environment or changing biology very fast means that people have to change, and it means that the world is going to be more and more different from the world in, in which we evolved as a species and even the world in which we developed agriculture and, and even modern forms of government. As Payne and Durzo have pointed out, we're just at the beginning of this sixth mass extinction. And with such a different signature from the previous events, we're not totally sure what the future has in store. But being at the beginning also has some advantages. For the first time ever, the driver of a mass extinction is also aware of it. Does that make things better? Maybe not. Our awareness doesn't always make things easier. Like so many other aspects of the Anthropocene, we're aware of our global impacts without feeling any sense that we can control them. We can make individual decisions, but it's hard to feel a sense of global intentionality to our actions. But that sense of awareness and the knowledge that our own decisions play into the larger Anthropocene picture do matter. Humans are driving the extinction. So that also means that if we made a concerted effort, we could decide to stop it. For Durzo, that's reason enough for some amount of hope. Once you get to know the ecology and evolution and physiology of these animals, and you know that the incredible adaptations that they have uh, come up with through the evolutionary process to be able to survive where they survive and see them disappear in front of your eyes is a very, very dramatic experience. But at the same time, uh, you know, to come in, into grips with the idea that many extinctions have already occurred, many populations have already gone, but there's still a significant proportion of the of the 
of the elements of life still present in the in plant and animal life that we can do things about that really push me as a scientist uh, who is very preoccupied about the extinction of life on the planet about doing things um, what what I have seen in terms of these dramatic experiences but the potential that I see in terms of what we can do uh, makes me feel very um, um, uh, motivated, very excited about continuing with my research, despite the fact that whenever I give talks or when I have interviews like this, there's always a, a message of uh, desolation and desperation about what has happened. But I think there is uh, still plenty of hope to be able to do things before it's too late. is our last episode for a while. But we are not going extinct. We're going to be dedicating the next few months to going out and collecting more conversations and stories. We'll be back, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, if you have any comments or feedback about the show, or any story ideas, please get in touch. You can email us at genanthropocene at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at genanthropocene. Our show is produced by Miles Traer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. Additional production help this week from Jackson Roach and Isha Salian. As always, we want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is ginanthro.com. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you soon. There's a great uh, bit by the comedian Louis C.K., and he talks about how humans don't acknowledge what an amazing thing it was that we removed ourselves from the food chain. <laughs> you know, just like that, that, like, you know, if we were like going to work and I was like, okay, I gotta put my pants on, I got my briefcase, and tiger you know like it was like a really huge moment like the, the fact that like no we don't have to worry about that anymore we've we've dominated the food chain as much as we possibly can like it's a stunning moment in evolution yeah uh, no that that's uh you know i think many of us don't appreciate that for most of human history when you walked outside you had to worry about being eaten